Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash QQJ. Supported by an independent educational grant from Merkin Company, Incorporated, Rahway, New Jersey, USA. Hello, everybody. I'm Professor Andy Ustianowski. I'm an infectious disease consultant and clinical researcher based in Manchester in the UK. Now, we're nearly three years into the COVID-19 pandemic, and we've learned an awful lot of things. But it's really important that we shouldn't become complacent about this virus, which is actually very likely to still cause us ongoing and episodic problems in the future. Despite surprisingly effective vaccines and other measures to prevent infection, it remains a serious public health threat. In the next four episodes, we're going to talk about practical tips for managing COVID-19 in the outpatient setting, with the goal of minimising the risk of an individual progressing to becoming severely unwell, needing hospitalisation or unfortunately dying. We're going to start with testing. So why is testing for SARS-CoV-2 still important? Well, it's really important for an individual to know what infection they have. It may not be COVID-19, it could be influenza, which has different therapies associated with it. But if it is COVID-19 and someone's at risk of progressing, then they can access specific antivirals and other interventions to make sure we decrease that risk. It's also important to prevent transmission. If someone knows they're infected, then there are certain interventions that can be put in place, whether that's social distancing or wearing masks or isolating, that can prevent transmission to others, particularly those who may also be susceptible to progression. And if reported, such testing allows us to really track the infection rates in a community, the epidemiology, who's most affected, etc., and allow us to address which interventions are most important in the future. So when to test? Well, I think it's particularly important to test after the onset of symptoms. And the common symptoms are fever, fatigue, cough, maybe other influenza type symptoms. But it's also potentially important to test after exposure to an infected individual, if you are at risk of progression, or indeed you might be interacting with those at greater risk. And before participating in group activities or exposure to at-risk or other vulnerable individuals. There may be other settings, so potentially it might be important to test before and after extended travel. Different variants are occurring at different rates in different parts of the world and in different parts of countries. And actually it might prevent some of that transmission, as well as tra travel itself being associated with close contact to people um, and multiple, multiple people. So in summary, I think testing is still a key component of managing COVID-19. Knowledge is power. And unless we know someone's got COVID-19, we can't really put into place the interventions to prevent progression of their disease, but also transmission to others. In the next episode, we'll consider which individuals would be expected to recover with no therapy or standard supportive therapy at home. And importantly, which individuals should potentially receive antiviral and other interventions. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on COVID-19. This activity comprises a series of four streaming episodes with Professor Andrew Ustinovsky.
At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everybody. In this episode, we're going to discuss what should happen after a positive COVID-19 test. Many individuals would be expected to recover with standard supportive care at home or in fact, no therapy at all without complications, but there are others who would benefit from specific active antiviral therapy in addition to supportive care. How do we know? Well, if I go through the way I think of COVID-19 for an individual in my head, I get something similar to this. So there's a positive COVID-19 test. I'd like to think that the majority of people may isolate for a period, maybe five days or so, in order to prevent transmission to others, particularly those more susceptible. And then really the decision is based on whether they have symptoms during those five days or subsequently, or in fact have no symptoms. If there are no symptoms, then no action is really needed. And after those five days, they can return to their normal activities. But if they have symptoms, then it depends on the severity of those symptoms. Antipyretics, fluids, rest, supportive care, etc., are useful for the majority of people. Those particularly at risk of progression may be suitable for antiviral therapy, which they can access through their healthcare systems. And it may be in certain circumstances, people will have pulse oximetry at home in order to monitor their progression. So let's think about the therapies or the potential therapies and management of COVID-19 in terms of the phases of illness. And we know that COVID-19 is multiphasic. So here I'm describing three phases. There's the initial early infection, really soon after viral inoculation, when there's initial viral replication, establishing residence, and the symptoms are nonspecific viral and related to the virus itself. Then we can progress to pulmonary um, symptoms or the pulmonary stage in some of those individuals. Here we start getting some localized inflammation, predominantly in the lungs. There's still viral replication, but we get a viral pneumonitis. And this is the stage where perhaps people are more likely to be admitted to hospital. And then there is a third stage in the unlucky individuals. And this is really a hyperinflammatory state. There's cytokine cascades, there's extra pulmonary inflammation, there's multi-organ failure, particularly respiratory failure. And these individuals often end up on intensive care, needing ventilation and support. So what interventions can we do? Well, we can think of different time episodes, different touch points. So there's the pre-exposure prophylaxis stage. Now, this could prevent someone who is susceptible to disease going on and catching infection or developing severe disease. Now, this is particularly for those that either can't have vaccination or have had a very poor response to vaccination. And we have a variety of agents, the vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, at least in theory, the small molecule antivirals could have a role here. We got the post-exposure prophylaxis stage when you've encountered someone who has COVID-19. And this is really to prevent the establishment of infection and severe disease. And again, monoclonal antibodies, the small molecule antivirals could have activity. We then have people who've developed disease but aren't yet needing hospitalization. Mild, moderate disease. And the aim there is to shorten the recovery time and to prevent them going to hospital or developing severe disease. And again, we have the monoclonal antibodies, we have the small molecule antivirals, and then we have people hospitalized. And really what we want there is to prevent them getting even worse and unfortunately dying. Here we have a lot of immunomodulators, anticoagulants and other agents. And then lastly, we unfortunately know very little about long COVID as yet, 
and the interventions that might prevent an individual developing long COVID. But there is interest in all those modalities that I've already mentioned. So who's at risk of progression? Well, we knew early on those with chronic respiratory disease, those with chronic cardiac disease were more susceptible, diabetes, overweight, etc. Now we can get data such as this, which breaks it down and tells us in this particular study that people with CKD needing dialysis or transplantation, people who have had solid organ or bone marrow transplants, etc., are more susceptible. And you can see on the right hand side, more likely to die along with some other risk factors there. Actually, I think those at-risk individuals depend partly on our population and the people we care for. So in my practice, it is the transplant recipients. It's those who are otherwise immunosuppressed with chemotherapy or B-cell ablative therapy, etc. So what about the risk of hospitalisation? Well, this is interesting data from the end of 2021 into early 2022, where they looked at the number of risk factors someone had, their age and how many doses of the vaccine they'd had. And the point I want to make is I view age really as an additional comorbidity or an additional at risk factor. And actually those who have not had adequate vaccination as yet another factor. And what is astonishing here is even those who are fully vaccinated, if they're elderly and have three or more at risk comorbidities, you can see they have an over 10% chance of being admitted to the hospital. And if they haven't had a vaccine, maybe over 60, 70 or 80% chance. So in summary, I think we should not become complacent about a positive COVID-19 test, especially if the individual is symptomatic or at risk of progression. Prompt evaluation, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be face-to-face, -face, telehealth, etc., can be utilized and intervening with the right management to prevent complications. And it's really important that we identify who is most vulnerable and who is most likely to progress. So in the next episode, we'll discuss current treatment options for the management of COVID-19. Thank you. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on COVID-19. This activity comprises a series of four streaming episodes with Professor Andrew Ustinovsky. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three. Here we're going to address once a patient has tested positive for COVID-19, what should happen next? If an antiviral therapy is indicated, what are our options? So let's start off with the goals of antiviral therapy. So importantly, I think the main goals are to prevent progression to severe disease, hospitalization, and unfortunately in some people, death. There may be other added benefits. It may be that the length of symptoms, even in those not hospitalized, is decreased or indeed the severity of those symptoms. But the key factor, preventing someone becoming so unwell, they need oxygen, hospitalization or other support. So what options do we have? Well, here we have a list of the therapies that are indicated in at least one national or international guideline. We have nermotrelvir ritonavir or Paxlovid recommended in several guidelines with strong recommendations. We have molnupiravir recommended in at least two guidelines, conditional recommendation. Citrovimab, a neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapy, recommended conditionally by some guidelines, and I'll come back to that in a second. And remdesivir, which is recommended in multiple guidelines conditionally. 
What's almost as important as knowing what is recommended, however, is what is not recommended. So there's a conditional recommendation against steroids, ivermectin, and fluvoxamine. Steroids, indicated if someone requires oxygen, but no evidence without oxygen. And if we look at those other two agents, really there is no conclusive data about benefit. And we have strong recommendations against convalescent plasma, colchicine, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, and calitra, or lopinavir, ritonavir. Even though they were thought to perhaps have activity, studies have shown they do not. So how do we decide between these? Well, some of it's related to drug-drug interactions, particularly with nermotrelvir, ritonavir. The ritonavir component, very many drug-drug interactions. So it's really important to know someone's co-medications and check them before prescribing. Molnupiravir, well tolerated, but make sure that someone doesn't become pregnant or isn't already pregnant. In terms of the um, mode of delivery, citrovimab and the neutralizing monoclonals are either intravenous or some of them intramuscular. And remdesivir currently is intravenous. Now this may cause complexities. And other adverse events to consider, the ritonavir component of nermotrelvir, ritonavir can cause GI upset. And not all these agents are available in all settings. So I think what's really important is to know what's available in your setting, what are the indications in your setting, and just be wary of those drug-drug interactions, possible pregnancy, etc. So in summary, I think it's important to recognize that most individuals with mild COVID-19 can recover at home without specific antiviral therapy. But for some, they will progress and antiviral therapy in them is really a key factor to consider. And please stay tuned for the final episode where we'll explore best practices for managing COVID-19. Thank you very much. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on COVID-19. This activity comprises a series of four streaming episodes with Professor Andrew Ustinovsky. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello again. Welcome to the final episode in this activity, where we're going to focus on communicating with our patients to ensure that those who do become infected and are at risk of progression can be engaged in care. This is particularly important for our vulnerable adult populations, those who are elderly, those with pre-existing comorbid conditions, and perhaps social ICUs such as being unhoused. So what do I advise my individual patients and what would I suggest you consider? Well, first of all, let's give some direction about when to test. Now, there are common symptoms related to COVID-19 and you can see some of them listed here, fever, headache, fatigue, cough. These are all quite non-specific, but it's really important that people recognize that they could be COVID-19. There are some symptoms that are perhaps a little bit more specific, but aren't definite indications of COVID-19. And here I'm thinking about loss of smell, loss of taste. Some strains of COVID-19 seem to have less of this activity against smell and taste anyway, so it's not that reliable. But I think what's really key and what I advise my individual patients is any unexplained symptom. It doesn't have to be one of the ones listed here, but anything that's unexplained 
think about getting a COVID-19 test because actually rare symptoms do occur. So hopefully they've known to get tested if they have these unexplained symptoms or these common symptoms. What should they do next? When should they perhaps interact or call a healthcare professional? Well, I think this depends very much on whether they are an at-risk individual. If someone has no risk factors, then I'm much more relaxed. But if they have comorbid conditions associated with progression or they're elderly or they're not vaccinated, then I would encourage them to contact a healthcare professional earlier. And what they should do in that consultation or that interaction is really describe their symptoms. Describe if they've had a test, what type of test and what the result was. What may be important is actually how long they've had the symptoms for, because that might inform which of the antivirals or which of the other interventions we are best giving. And perhaps it's important to know if there's anyone else in the household who is at increased risk or they're interacting with anyone else at increased risk. And then what about monitoring symptoms? At the moment, someone um, is stable. They may or may not get antivirals. What am I advising them? And what would I encourage you to think about? Well, I think the first thing is regardless of treatments, they should monitor their symptoms. For a lot of people, the acute symptoms such as fever really improve within three, five, seven days. And that's what I would expect in the vast majority. Some symptoms, however, do progress and prolong. So for instance, an isolated cough, tiredness, the loss of taste and smell, which can occur, could persist for one, two, three, or even more weeks. Now, if they're on their own and they're relatively stable, then I'm not particularly worried. What should we expect with antiviral therapy? Well, the indications are that these symptoms get better quicker, but for an individual, that's impossible to gauge. So really we're given the antiviral therapy to prevent that progression to needing hospitalization. If someone can monitor their oxygen levels with a pulse oximeter, that's useful. One of those funny things about COVID-19 is that some people don't get the air hunger. They don't perceive that they're hypoxic and feel short of breath. So if you have the facilities for that in an at-risk individual, that would be something that I would suggest. And if they're worried, if their symptoms aren't getting better or they're progressing or someone is hypoxic, they really should call for medical attention or attend the emergency department if they feel particularly unwell or are hypoxic. So in summary, we may not be able to turn the page on COVID-19 quite yet, and I think we've got quite a long time still to go, but we can take steps which are evidence-based to make it a limited mild illness in those that are at particular risk. As, as clinicians, our goal is to keep our patients out of hospital, free of major, major complications and alive. We need to encourage our patients to test that the first signs of COVID-related symptoms or unusual symptoms, regardless of their vaccination status. If the test positive and they are at risk, they should contact their healthcare professional. Or even if they're not at risk, but things are progressing and not resolving as would be expected, get some advice. Thank you so much for joining me in this activity and for spending your time. I hope it's been useful for you. Most importantly, I hope that you've learned something which might positively influence the outcomes of your patients. Thank you so much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.